You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Would you open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 through 23. If you're using one of the blue Bibles under the seat, you'll find the text in page 982. Page 982. Philippians chapter 4, verse 14 through 23. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply your need of every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God, and Father, be glory and forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, and the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, as, as Vince said, my name is Tom. I am neither a pastor nor a member here, yet it is an honor to, to bring God's Word before you this morning. Um, my wife and I, we were here for four years as uh, members of the church while I was completing my degree at Bethlehem Seminary. And during that time, I was able to serve on staff, which was a joy and gave me the opportunity to get to know so many of you here. So it's good to see you guys Again, this morning, uh, please come say hi uh, in between the break here. Now, the last time I was here would have been June 13th of 2020. Uh, There were about 15 other people here, but that was uh, when we were commissioned and sent off to go and uh, lead a church planning effort in White Bear Lake. And praise God, Emmaus Church is pushing now three years of age, and God has been uh, very kind and gracious to us in that time. So Stephen, he asked me to, ser- to offer a uh, few updates about how things are going in White Bear, which I really am quite eager to do. The first thing that I want to say, though, is this. We would not exist as a church without your help. And that's 100% true. Emmaus Church would not be where we are, probably exist at all, if it was not for you guys. So we are grateful for Bethlehem North, the North Church, for the way that you guys have generously helped us in taking care of expenses. The way that church leadership very graciously encouraged people to join us as we planted in White Bear. Grateful for the way many leaders here have served as a soundboard to us in our times of need. We're just so grateful for the partnership we have with you. So we had our first service in June of 2020. And for three months, we, uh, we met outside. We were an outside church in the middle of 2020. And that, 
That gave us some interesting uh, experiences. I remember one Sunday I preached and a dog ran through the, the service in the midst of the sermon. Um, the sun was always a bit of a problem. There was one rainy day which created a few technical issues. And the wind, believe it or not, the wind might have been our biggest uh, adversary. We, we had this wonderful big like canvas uh, backdrop and you just never knew if the wind was going to throw that down on your skull in the midst of a sermon. So it always kept you a bit on edge. So that was our first three months. And in God's kindness, pretty quickly after that, we were able to buy a dilapidated church building, which has for the last two plus years now become a wonderful home for us. We are very grateful for that place and glad that we can call it home. And yet we now kind of enter this strange season of seeing that it's, it, it, it's, filling up uh, pretty regularly. So I encourage you, join us in prayer as we ask God what's next uh, as we think about future facility endeavors. Last year, we were able to celebrate 12 baptisms as a church, which was a joy. Uh, one of them was my daughter, which uh, is an even greater joy, but all, all 12 were a joy. We welcomed somewhere about 25 new members into the church and we celebrated the birth of 13 babies, um, which, which is quite a feat because there's only about 40 member households. So that's a lot of babies. Uh, some some uh, decided to have twins. So that, that was a, a high efficiency uh, option there. So that, many joys there. Uh, we've also had this great experience recently of seeing a lot of neighbors. Our church is located just in the middle of a residential area. And... We're seeing more and more neighbors come and visit. People that are locals in White Bear Lake that haven't been to church for years are, are coming and considering their faith again, which is a really sweet thing for us to see. And now we're about three years in, and it's pretty amazing to see some of the maturity and growth of some of these members that have been with us since the beginning. Uh, such an encouragement to leaders of the church to see, hey, people are growing and maturing in the faith here. So so much to be encouraged by and so much that I am grateful to God for. And as I said earlier, we wouldn't be here without your partnership. So I'm grateful to you. So with all that in mind, I now want you to consider this question with me. When Stephen, Pastor Stephen, asked me to preach this morning, how strange would it have been for me to say no? With all that you have done for us, was I in any way obligated to come and preach this morning? Now, I think I can say, no, I was not obligated. But would it have been just a little bit strange, just a little bit strange, maybe even a little bit rude and a bit unfitting, if I just flat out said, don't have time for it, no interest at all? Now, obviously, there might be an appropriate reason for me to decline the offer. But, but in general, I think we would say there is something appropriate in me accepting this offer with joy to come and preach. Maybe let's think about this in more, more general terms. Gifts can at times hold a strange expectation with them, whether they're financial gifts or gifts of time and service. How many of you have received an unexpected Christmas gift from someone and you were ill-prepared? Ill-prepared to make an exchange here. 
Now, that might not have been expected, but let's be honest. I, I think we've all at some point had this kind of awkward moment of, oh, how am I to reciprocate in this moment? I have a good friend from the church who has probably helped me with about a dozen home projects over the last few years, and he, he's a single guy, he's got a lot of time, and he does not own a home. So I not once, not a single time, have I helped him with a home project. Yet let's just consider, if he were to buy a home in the next year, and he asked me to come help him with a project, would it be appropriate for me to accept that offer and go and help him? Would I be obligated to do so? Again, I think not formally, not formally so. There's no contract. But might there be some social expectation that it would be the proper thing for me to say yes? Now, there's been a lot of studies recently on the topic of gifts. And one fact that emerges in these discussions is that we, modern Western people, we have an idealized understanding of the concept of gift. We, we think of this thing, a pure gift, as something that's given without any self-interest at all. Something that's given with zero obligations, without zero, with zero expectations of reciprocation. Something that's entirely detached from everything else. It's pure altruism. Now, there's a lot of questions about the reality of such a pure gift. Is such thing even possible? Even questions about whether such an understanding is healthy or right. But for our purpose this morning, I simply want to point this out. That way of thinking of gifts as a pure gift, that is a very modern, a very new understanding of gifts. The idea that a gift can come with zero obligations, purely disinterested, again, that's a very, very new idea. It would not at all have been customary thinking for the Apostle Paul and his contemporaries. Again, not, not at all. You've maybe heard this term before, patronage. Patronage, is that, that term you maybe heard? So in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's time, gifts were connected to relationships. And there were certain expectations, certain obligations that were attached to the giving and receiving of gifts. Giving a gift could potentially establish a relationship. If in response that gift was then received and then reciprocated upon, then a lasting relationship might be formed. The act of receiving a gift in a real sense obligated the receiver to reciprocate either in deed or in word. Again, that's quite different from our social expectations today, but hopefully this is making some sense. This was, in many ways, the social structure of the Apostle Paul's day. How one gave and how one received created this relative status among friends and trading parties. And to grow in status, one had to grow in giving. Now, in the midst of this structure, you also have people that are uh, lower class populations. They're, they're unable to reciprocate on equal terms. 
So you can envision this scenario. You've got a, a gentleman. He's a wealthy, semi-powerful man that we'll call Mr. Moneybags. All right, so Mr. Moneybags, he gives gifts to his less wealthy neighbors. And in doing so, Mr. Moneybags knows that he's never going to receive a gift in kind. They're never going to be able to pay him back in the same way. But the gift of Mr. Moneybags still has strings attached. There are still obligations. There are still social expectations behind the gift. He gave, and it was expected that his neighbors would receive the gift and would give back to Mr. Moneybags in the form of honor. Mr. Moneybags was investing in a power market. And that was a major power structure within the ancient world. Benefactors or patrons might give money or other costly gifts and in return receive honor, allegiance, and thus social power that comes with those gifts. So again, that's a very important dynamic for us to keep in mind as we consider Paul's letter to the Philippians. The social expectations that are associated with gift giving. So we have that in mind. So now let's just quickly recall Paul's particular situation. We remember that as he's writing this letter, he's where? He's a prisoner. And while he's in prison, a Christian community in the city of Philippi, well, they come together and they say, hey, we want to help this man out. Let's send him a gift. It's a good idea. So what does the church do? Well, they raise a substantial sum of money, and then they send a man named Epaphroditus across the known world to deliver this gift to Paul. Epaphroditus, he completes his mission. Paul receives the gift, and he is clearly very, very grateful for the gift. So he's received the gift, and he is grateful. But how is he going to respond? How is he going to respond? How is he going to reciprocate and respond to this? Well, maybe you'd recommend a thank you note, thank you card. It's a good idea. I think that matches at least our cultural understanding. And in a way, that's actually what Paul is doing with this letter. Many scholars consider Paul's letter to the Philippians as primarily a letter addressing their gift. Now again, Paul, he is fully aware of the system and customs concerning gifts. He lived and breathed in that world. So this leads to a natural question. Do the Philippians have strings attached with their gift? Do the Philippians expect some apostolic favor in return from Paul? Now we might hear that and we might think, wow, that sounds somewhat malicious. This clearly isn't a genuine gift that they've offered. But that's not an entirely fair analysis because, again, such expectations would have been entirely normal, entirely customary. Gifts like this were laced with the strings of expectation. So hopefully you're feeling a little bit of this tension. Paul has a dilemma on his hands. On one hand, yes, he is grateful for the gift, But at the same time, by accepting the gift, 
he does not want to imply that he owes the Philippians anything in return. Similarly, he doesn't want to imply that the power structure has changed, that the relationship between Paul and the Philippian church has changed. Because Paul does not work for the Philippians. He works for God. And he needs to make that clear. Apostolic friendship cannot be bought. It is a gift. But again, at the same time, he is genuinely thankful for this gift. And he wants to make that clear. So how is he going to go about doing this? How is he going to thread the needle here saying thank you without saying expect a gift in return from me? Well, here's what Paul does. He reframes this entire situation in light of Jesus Christ and the Christian mission. Paul makes clear that this is no standard patronage system, no standard patronage situation. This is instead mutual Christian partnership, and it looks very different from what the world might expect. So now let's consider how Paul goes about saying this. So we recall from last week Paul's words. He says flat out in verse 11 that he was not in need. No, 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 Paul says. He had everything he needed. He was content. So before he even directly addresses the gift, he makes this subtle point to the Philippians. He didn't need anything from them. He didn't need anything. Their gift was joyously superfluous. God had already provided sufficiently. Yet we see here in verse 14 that Paul was glad to see how the Philippians responded to a situation. Paul was in an uncomfortable and painful situation, and thus it was good. It was good for the Philippians to try to lift him out of this plight. It was good and right of them to bring aid to Paul. Their response, it was proper. It was fitting. Christians ought to lovingly care for brothers and sisters when they are in lowly situations like Paul was. Even though he didn't need it. Even though he didn't need it, the action was right. And that's a significant reality for us, isn't it? Just because help isn't needed doesn't mean we ought not give it. Just because a family dealing with job loss and financial strain says, no, 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 it's, it's going to be a tight season, but we'll make it. It doesn't mean it's not right to show up at their home with a meal and offer them help. Just because a family and a new mother says, no, I, I don't think we need a meal train. We're going to be fine. It doesn't mean it's not right for us to show up with diapers and a meal anyway. Paul didn't need the help. But he was glad for it, and it was good and right and proper for the Philippians to give it. But here's what's most, most profound about what Paul says here. By giving this gift, by sending Epaphroditus to care for Paul, by doing all of this, the Philippians were in some sense entering into Paul's hardship. They are vicariously participating in his suffering. They are sharing, as Paul says, in his trouble. Now, that's not how we tend to think, is it? If we were to ask the Philippians, 
why they sent the gift. How do we think they might have responded? Now, now we can't know for sure, but we might guess something along this line. Well, we gave to Paul because we desired to alleviate his suffering. Consider this. Why might you send funds to an organization that's serving an area in crisis? Is it because you're hoping to alleviate the pain and the brokenness of the situation? Or do you long to participate in the suffering of those who are in the midst of it? We generally want to alleviate pain. We want to stop suffering, and that's good. That's a good thing. But here, Paul connects the gift with sharing in his trouble. And that's also a good thing. That's an appropriate reality, I think, for us to be aware of, for us to be conscious of. As you support a global partner, you're not just helping them pay the bills. You are doing that. That's necessary and that's good, but you're doing more. You are entering into their ministry with them. You are sharing in their troubles. As you give your offering to this church, again, you're not just helping keep this door, the doors open. You're not just helping with the facilities. No, you are entering in a real way to the partnership and the ministry of this church. You are sharing in the joys and even the sufferings of this ministry. So Paul, he's immediately reframing the situation, isn't he? This, this isn't a customary gifting situation. No, this is a sign of gospel partnership. So Paul, he is now heartened by the actions of the Philippians. And why is he so heartened? Because he knows that in a real sense, the Philippians are sharing in his troubles. They are partnering with him in the gospel mission. But that's not all. Now, he is also heartened by their maturity. The Philippians, they have been a help to Paul throughout his ministry. And now, as he has received their help yet again, he rejoices not just at the gift that they give, but in the evidence of faithfulness that their gift displays. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. We just need to notice this. Paul makes the financial gift secondary. It is a secondary thing. What's more important? The faithfulness of the Philippians to give. Now, a few years ago, in the midst of seminary, my furnace was kind of on, on its last leg. And I recall my wife and I having this discussion after talking with a mechanic, an HVAC guy. And we're wondering, what do we do? How are we going to pay for this job? Is this something we should do now? Is this something we should wait on? We're talking this through and we're, we're considering what our options are. Well, in the midst of this discussion, in walks my daughter with a wad of cash from her piggy bank in hand and these radiating eyes glowing with a desire to help. She clearly overheard our conversation and she saw an ability to step in and she was moved to do so. Now, a cold-hearted accountant might laugh at this and say, how is that meager sum going to affect this situation at all? 
But a warm-blooded parent is going to be moved to tears and think, it's not the gift we sought, but the generous motivation behind the gesture. In Paul's case, he's experiencing the maturity of the Philippians. And he receives this meaningful gift. And he properly sees that the fruit of faith is greater than the gift itself. What Paul does next is, again, quite interesting. We can say accurately that from a flat perspective, from a very flat perspective, that Paul is clearly the primary receiver of the gift, right? I mean, think about it. The money went from the Philippians directly to the hands of Paul. He is the primary recipient. Yet here, Paul encourages the Philippians and us along with them to consider the gift from a transcendent perspective. Ultimately, Paul says, the gift is not to Paul, but to God. It serves as a fragrant offering. It is a sacrifice, he says, acceptable and pleasing to God himself. Now, you might notice, this is Old Covenant sacrificial language here. Paul is comparing the gift of the Philippians to an Old Covenant sacrifice. It seems striking, doesn't it? But there's more. In Ephesians 5, Paul uses this language to the Ephesians. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's not miss that. Paul is using the same language to connect Christ's sacrificial death with the sacrificial gift of the Philippians. Now, at first blush, this almost sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? Aren't these different gifts both in kind and in function? Well, yes. And Paul is by no means calling the generosity of the Philippians salvific. Instead, he is connecting their gift to the sacrifice of Christ. They are related, but not identical. The generosity of the Philippians corresponds to the generosity of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ is the primary and ultimate sacrifice that actually gives meaning to the sacrifice of the Philippians. By generously giving, the Philippians are not taking the place of Christ. No, but they are in their own way mimicking Christ which is exactly what Paul has been telling the Philippians to do throughout this letter, isn't it? Have the very mind of Jesus. Have the same love, the same humility, the same manner of acting, thinking, and feeling. Paul has been saying, be like Christ. And here, he confirms that in their sacrificial giving, what have they been doing? Been displaying a Christ-likeness. And because of this, Paul proceeds now to proclaim, God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now let's just notice how Paul has now fully transformed and reframed this entire gift exchange. Think about this with me. Paul has received the gift, yet ultimately... 
Paul says the gift is a sacrifice of the Philippians to God. And Paul says here, the Philippians will be repaid, but not according to Roman custom. No, Paul is not indebted to them. He's not going to repay them. He's not going to pay them back as they might expect. Instead, who is? God will supply. Notice that. Not Paul. God. Paul, again, he he is not indebted to the Philippians because of their gift. He has no obligation hanging over his head. The relationship he has with the church has not been altered at all, as custom would have assumed. But why not? Because God ultimately is the giver of gifts. He will repay. Now let's try to consider this with an image. So consider a circle, right? Consider a circle with me. Over here, you have the Philippians. And on the southern end, you have Paul. And everything that's making up the circle in between is a reciprocating expectation of gift giving. Philippians, they send a gift to Paul. Paul receives it. And appropriately, he reciprocates. And the circle carries on. Two parties back and forth in this system of expectation. But Paul jumps in and he adds something to this picture. God. God is now in the very center of it. Gifts ultimately flow to him. God himself. Even the gift that's to Paul is ultimately, primarily a sacrifice to God. It goes to the middle before it goes to Paul. The old circle is now gone because God, the true gift giver, has subsumed it. Paul and the Philippians are not functioning in the old world relationship. No, they are partners who are both participating in the mission of God together. That frees them from old world expectations. Paul is free to give, I'm sorry, he's free to receive without burden. And the Philippians are free to give without expectation. As one theologian rightly says, now Christian givers impose no debts. Christian recipients acknowledge no debts except to love. That is the primary emphasis behind Paul's words here, that God will supply all their needs. But many ask, what exactly does Paul mean when he says that God will supply every need in Christ Jesus. What is he referencing here? Is that a spiritual reality? Is that a physical reality? It's important just to note here that Paul doesn't care to answer that question with precision and detail. His main point is that God, not Paul, is the one who repays. So we need to be careful not to get too caught up in the unnecessary details. But but the question is still an interesting one. What might Paul mean by saying God will supply every need in Christ Jesus? So let's just consider that for a second. We can only consider the question, though, when we properly frame it. So here are a few things to consider. Here's what we know. We know that Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter, right? We also know, based on another letter that Paul's written, 2 Corinthians 8, that the church in Philippi is not wealthy. 
They are in extreme poverty. So from these two facts, we can say that Paul surely isn't implying some type of prosperity gospel here. He's not saying, give generously and you will then receive wealth beyond measure. We know based on the circumstances that that's not what he's getting at. But we know a few other facts that I think are very important to consider here. Consider Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Well, that tells us something about the character of God, doesn't it? John Calvin offers a related train of thought. He points us to nature and creation. He points us to the idea of food. And Calvin points out that food is made to nourish, but God also made food for us to delight in. Most needful is the nourishment, but there's more behind it. There's delight in the taste. Think about clothing. There's something necessary about clothing for the sake of modesty, but Calvin says, but there's more behind clothing. It adorns us in beauty. What about trees and herbs and plants? Well, again, they have a function of nourishing, but there's more. They offer a delightful scent. They offer us something beautiful to look at. So what's his point in all this? What's this? God is a good gift giver. He gives beyond needs. He gives beyond expectations. He gives generously. He gives more than we need and exactly what we need simultaneously. He's not looking for some opt-out clause for how we can give as little as possible. He is generous beyond bounds. So we need to really be careful here as we qualify what Paul is preaching. He's not promising Porsches, but we must say that he is indeed promising something wonderful because the one behind the promise is a generous God. Now on Thursday, I visited a church member in the ICU, and I was able to tell him, this friend, with great confidence that I had no idea how long he'd have to stay in the hospital. Again, with great confidence, I had no idea how much pain he'd be forced to endure. And my confidence was still just as high when I said, I have no idea if you might be required to go through another surgery. But what I could tell him with actual confidence was this, your God and Father is generous. <laughs> he will indeed supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus. So again, with these words, Paul does not offer us a scientific explanation behind his statement because that's not his point. But we know what Paul says here is good news for the Philippians and good news for others who share in this same gospel partnership. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches, which are found where? In Christ Jesus. How does God supply for these needs? Well, those final three words are the answer. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is where the riches of God are made available and experienced by his people. 
Jesus Christ is the primary great gift. He is the prototypical gift to all humanity. He is the source of all glory and goodness, and through him flow the gifts of God to humanity. All other gifts that are good and right are just participating in his goodness. These are gifts to everyone, gifts to Jews, gifts to Gentiles. And as Paul can't help but point out here, even Gentiles in Caesar's house. The gift of Christ is being received and cherished by all people in all places in the most unexpected households. So friends, this might not seem like a major thing, but in this letter, Paul is subverting long-practiced customs of gift-giving. He was shifting power dynamics of the ancient world. He was, in effect, turning the world upside down, removing the need to reciprocate as custom demands, removing the need to bow before patrons, removing the need to demand honor from those below us, removing the need for us to demand recompense for the gifts that we give. Instead, Paul invites us to reconsider our giving and our receiving in Christ Jesus. Paul invites us to look to God. Look to Him, the one who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. Look to Him and consider, will He not also give us all things with Christ? There is no greater gift than the one God has already bestowed to us in Christ Jesus. So stop demanding repayment and trust the goodness of God. North Church, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. I am truly grateful that you have shared in the troubles of Emmaus Church. And I am all the more grateful that together we share in the riches of the great gift that is Christ Jesus. And I close us with Paul's glorious words here. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from the North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.